Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, the book of 1 John, which is uh, right before the book of Revelation. <clears throat> we'll be in chapter 2 today, verses 7 through 11. Uh, big game tonight, of course, um, Super Bowl. And um, back in the year 2000, there was uh, a Super Bowl that year also between uh, the Baltimore Ravens and the New York Giants. A guy named Trent Dilfer was the quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens and led the Ravens to victory uh, in that game. And I heard an interview with Trent Dilfer on the radio talking about that experience. And he was talking about how after the game, um, he got swamped with interviews and all these people were coming to him and um, he got detained and he was talking you know for a certain length of time finally got away and went back to the locker room and found that everybody on his team had already left all the lockers were empty and there wasn't one person in the locker room and I remember very distinctly what Trent Dilfer said he said it was one of the loneliest experiences of my life now, isn't that an odd thing? That man had just won the Super Bowl, and yet right after that, he found it an empty experience, and the reason why is because he didn't have anybody to celebrate it with. He was left there by himself. His community, in other words, had departed. Now, as Christians here on Sunday morning, we're doing something a whole lot more important this morning than what's going to happen later this evening. Uh, we're here celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, that's a much greater and more significant thing than winning the Super Bowl. And yet, it's similar. In the same way, we are intended to enjoy and celebrate this resurrection together as a community with our brothers and sisters in a group, not as isolated individuals. Now, you'll get here in a minute why I'm, I'm telling you this. We're in a study on the book of 1 John. And 1 John is written, according to chapter 5, verse 13, it's written so that you may know you have eternal life. I, I hope that's at least one thing that you'll remember from this series. 1 John is written that you may know you have eternal life. It's written to give you assurance that your sins are forgiven. It's written so that you don't have to walk through life wondering, does God love me? Am I accepted by him? Am I going to heaven? Does God hate me? Is he angry with me? You don't have to live in a state of uncertainty about those questions. John has written that you might know you have eternal life. It's written for your assurance. And at the same time, what John is doing is giving us diagnostic tests by which we can evaluate whether we are really Christians. Because there are certainly people who claim to be Christians who aren't. And so how do we know if we're Christians or not? And so he's giving these, these tests. So, um, for instance... Uh, clicker not working. John's three diagnostic tests. So, yeah, can one of you see if you can put a battery in here, please? And then, Jeff, maybe you can kind of go along here. So, um, we haven't gotten to chapter 2, verses 18 through 27 yet. That, that'll be the doctrinal test. So, there are certain things that a person must believe about who Jesus is, and so... That, that's coming in a few weeks. But the, the second test is the moral test. Now, we talked about that last week. 
And you might remember in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2, John was talking about the importance of obeying God's commands and resisting sin. There's a certain moral test. If you claim to be a Christian, but you have no interest in obeying him, that suggests that your profession is false. But today, we have the third test, and it's a social test. That is, one of the tests of whether we're truly Christians has to do with our relationship with others. In other words, the genuineness of your relationship with God is seen or reflected in the quality of your relationship with others. It is impossible for a person to say, I love Jesus, but I have no interest in Jesus' people. Those two things do not go together. If you love one, you love the other. And what John is going to call us to do here in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 2 is take some inventory of ourselves in terms of our relationship with the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so you might say to yourself here, well, you know, I, I don't consider myself a super loving person. I don't even really know where to begin if I'm going to connect better with a particular community. Where, where do I begin? And so that's kind of what John is instructing us about here in these verses. And so uh, the first thing that he tells us is this. Look to the ancient scriptures. If you want to know how to love, we need to look to the scriptures. And that might seem obvious, but you know, a lot of people think of love as just a mere emotion, uh, just, uh, just a feeling, just you know, whatever is going on in my heart at the moment. That, that's kind of a, a proper expression of love. But what John is telling us here is that we get to know love as we look at the content of the scriptures, as we look what is objectively revealed to us in the Bible. Now the reason why I'm saying look to the ancient scriptures is because of what John says here. Look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So what John is saying here is, is I'm giving you something ancient. I'm turning your attention back to the thing that you heard at the very beginning that probably refers to the beginning of their Christian faith when they got converted, they became Christians. John is just saying, I'm telling you the same thing now that I told you when you became Christians. But at the same time, it's, it's an old commandment. It's 
the word that you have heard that has been around for centuries. And this is what I'm telling you. Here's what John is saying. Beloved, I am not trying to be innovative here. I am not trying to break new ground. I am not trying to be cutting edge. I'm not trying to be creative. I'm not trying here to tell you something that you've never heard before. I'm telling you the same old, same old. The same command that has existed for centuries. This old commandment, ancient words found in the scripture. You know, one of the marks of a cult is when they start saying, I've got something for you that you've never heard before. It's been held down. It's been in secret. People don't want you to know about it, but we know about it. And if you come with us, you'll know this secret thing. Brand new. You've never heard anything like this. When people start telling you something like that, you might want to get a little concerned. Remember what I've been telling you every Sunday here, the Gnostics. They were the heretics at work in the church at the time. The Gnostics denied the value of the body. We've been hearing that. Here's another thing the Gnostics denied. Accepted revelation from the past. The Gnostics were always after something new. What everybody's been believing is no good. We need something fresh and exciting. And that's probably what John has in mind here when he makes this emphasis on the old commandment. I think we need to hear this as a culture because we live in a culture that is always clamoring for something new, aren't we? We just have this kind of assumption that if it's old, it's irrelevant, it's dusty, it's antiquated, it's irrelevant, it's useless. The newer it is, the better it is. It isn't that at the root of the compulsion that we have to constantly check Twitter and Facebook. We're scared to death we might miss something. We're scared to death we might not see the new thing. We're worried about what happened in the last 15 minutes that we might miss. I mean, what a job it is to open up Twitter when you haven't looked at it for 24 hours and you got to scroll through everything that's been coming in. I mean, social media can be exhausting, can't it? when we're looking at it as a way to just keep up with what is new, to keep up with the latest thing. A lot of us are just driven by that, as if what is new is always better. I mean, even in reference to the President's State of the Union address, I saw a comment by somebody on social media, kind of a famous pundit, and he said, you know, I didn't even watch the State of the Union address, and it's not because I have anything, you know, it's not a political thing, it, it doesn't have anything to do with what I think of the President, he said. So the only reason I didn't watch it is because I know that whatever he said is going to be forgotten in a week. And no one's going to be talking about it. Because they're going to be talking about the latest new thing then. And what happened this week will be old news. There's a guy named Charles Hodge, <clears throat> very famous uh, theologian in our circles here, Presbyterian reform circles. He was principal of uh, Princeton Seminary in the 1800s. And there was an event where they were celebrating some milestone that Princeton had achieved. And Charles Hodge said this proudly, a new idea never originated at Princeton. We've never had a new idea in this place. Now that almost just sounds wrong at the face of it, doesn't it? What? And that's because we have this assumption that new is better. That can't be right to not want something new. But when you're proclaiming the word of God and proclaiming the gospel, we're not looking for something new. 
We want to hang on to what's old and what's been proven and tried over the centuries. And that was Hodge's point. And that's what John is saying here. I'm writing to you no new commandment and old commandment. You had it from the beginning, the same old thing. Now, what is the commandment? Oh, yeah, I don't have my clicker. So um, here's, here's the commandment. Some commandments that have to do with love. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That, I think, is what John is, is talking about. The first most important command is love God. That's the place to start. If you want to love people better, you've got to love God well. You can't love people well unless you love God first. The vertical love spills out horizontally, but it needs to start with a proper relationship with God, loving him, because how can you love others unless you respond to the one who created you and knows best how you're supposed to love? He's the one that's going to direct you that way, so you've got to love him first. But then secondly, we see in Leviticus another command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The second command, loving those around you. And the reason why I'm choosing these two, not arbitrarily, but because of what Jesus said in Matthew 22, where he was asked a question, and the question was, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the, the, uh, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Deuteronomy and Leviticus that Jesus is quoting. On these two commandments, look at this statement, on these two depend all the law and the prophets. The whole law of God, everything that God commands us to do is fulfilled and summed up in that one command, love God and love your neighbor. It's hard to overestimate how important that quality must be if the whole Bible depends upon loving. I mean, no matter what it is you do in obedience to God, if it's absence of love, it's basically worthless. So I wonder what it is that you've kind of like called upon God to grant to you or maybe dreams you've had. You know, maybe you've, you've asked, oh, God, please, you know, make me a great evangelist or God, please give me a, a great and powerful ministry or Lord God, please um, uh, make me a great teacher. Please, Lord, give me great knowledge. Make me a great intellect. But I wonder how many of you have said, Lord, give me a great heart to love people. Give me a heart that loves people. Thank you. I mean, has that ever been a priority in in your life, in your ministry. I mean, every preacher wants to be a great preacher, but you know, if you're a great preacher and you don't know how to love people, it doesn't matter. You know, everybody probably wants to influence people and be highly regarded among people, but if you're highly regarded among people but you don't love them, it means nothing. It's a waste of time, it's hot air. And this is what John is calling us to do. It's an old command, and the way we learn about it and know about it is by looking to the ancient scriptures. Second thing that we see, look to your church family. Here's here's the way to love, looking to your church family. Um, Skip ahead to verse 9. Here's where we get um, this diagnostic test that I've been telling you about. Verse 9. John says, whoever says he is in the light, 
Okay, that's the person making the profession. I'm in the light. I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm the real deal. But if this person hates his brother, that person is, in other words, deceived. That person is in the darkness, it says. He might think he's a Christian, but because he has this animosity toward his brother, and don't get too hung up on the fact that it doesn't say and sister. I mean, certainly we want to include that. Uh, just the emphasis on the male pronoun at that time was much greater, but John certainly has males and females in mind here. But he's saying, if you say you're a Christian, but you have hatred in your heart for your brother or for your sister, you're deceived. That's the diagnostic test. That's a sure sign that you're not the Christian you think you are. But then he gives this contrast in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother, however, abides in the light. That's the person who is truly walking in the light. That's the person whose profession of faith is being proven by his or her love for brothers and sisters. This is the social test. The evidence of saving faith is, is, is your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. So th that's the point I want you to see here is that repetition of the word brother. Do you see that in verse 10? Whoever loves his brother... Verse 9, actually, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, also in verse 10, loves his brother. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother, do you see the repetition? Brother, brother, brother. What John is talking about is the family of God. Now, certainly, we are called as Christians to love our neighbor. We're called as Christians to love our enemies. But the primacy, the centrality that John has in mind here is our love for the church, our love for our brothers and sisters in our congregation. Love for one another sitting right here in this room. That's what John says is the true test of saving faith. You know, there are just so many commands in the scriptures, friends, that you cannot obey apart from the church. You separate yourself from the church. You put yourself in a position where you cannot be a God-honoring Christian. You can't, it's impossible. Because so many of these commands are given to us in the context of the community of faith. When I do premarital counseling, I always tell the people, I always say, you know, I know you're really in love with her, but have you considered that when you marry her, you're marrying her family as well? You know, you take your spouse, you take your spouse's family. It's a package deal. You can't have a healthy, good marriage committed to your spouse and completely ignore the family of your spouse. And it's the same thing with being a Christian. You can't take Jesus and not have his family, too. It's a package deal. You want Jesus, you get the church. You get brothers and sisters in a local congregation. And that's what John has in mind here. Loving our brother, the difference between loving our brother and hating our brother. Well, how does he go on here to tell us like how this looks? And, and I think we find something that's a little surprising. It was a little surprising to me, anyway, um, about what this love for brothers and sisters looks like. So, again, looking at verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. So, this metaphor of light and darkness is being brought back. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, the one who hates is the one who is 
according to verse 11, not only in the darkness, but because of that, he doesn't even know where he's going in life. He's just stumbling through life because his heart is filled with hate and the darkness has blinded his eyes and he doesn't even realize it. It's like when you go to a, a movie and you arrive late and the lights are already turned out and you walk into the theater. Have you ever had that situation? And you know, you've never been in the place and you're kind of, there's all of a sudden this slope that goes up and it kind of startles you and you don't know where the chairs are and you can hardly see where the people are and you're stumbling through and tripping and it's embarrassing and that's the very simple picture that John is giving us here. The person filled with hate is stumbling through life. But I think it's very interesting that we got this light, dark, darkness metaphor being linked to the difference between loving and hating. I don't think this is pushing it too far, but if you think of it like this, that darkness is basically the absence of light. And so I think the implication here is that hatred, in John's mind, is the absence of love. In other words, hatred is not just an act of aggression. Hatred is not committing, vi I mean, committing violence. I mean, of course, it does involve that. I should say hatred is not only those things. Hatred is not just some kind of proactive um, attempt to harm somebody. According to John, hatred can simply be the absence of love, that is, a sense of apathy towards your brothers and sisters, a sense of, sense of indifference to your brothers and sisters. You, you, you come to church and you're, you're with them, you say hello to them, but deep down, you don't give a lick about them. You don't care about them. You're here because you should be here. And you smile when you should smile, but quite frankly, you don't have any interest in these people. What John seems to be suggesting here is that that's not just indifference, that's hatred. It's the absence of love. Darkness is the absence of light. Hatred is the absence of love. It's so interesting, you know, Christians often get called haters today, don't we? I mean, it's a very common word to use for us because of certain moral stands <coughs> that we take. Um, interesting also in the early centuries, the Christians were actually called haters as well, so this is nothing new. Uh, there's a quote in an ancient historian who said Christians were called haters of humanity. That was the common phrase used for them because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. They said Jesus Christ risen from the dead is the only one worth worshiping. And so the Romans just said these, these haters who won't worship our gods. And now today, Christians get called haters for a, a different reason. We get called haters because we might take a stand against certain lifestyles or certain moral choices. And so we're called haters. But look at verse 10. It's very interesting. Verse 10 says, Whoever loves his brother... The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and in him, that is, in the one who loves the brother, there's no cause for stumbling. The one who loves his brother does not give cause for the person who is being loved to stumble. The person who loves well does not just look the other way when somebody stumbles into sin. That word stumble is very often in the scriptures used for for sin. 
the person who truly loves will not give permission to his brothers and sisters to walk blindly into sin. So somebody comes to you and says, you know, uh, I've been single for a long time, but I've met this person and I'm going to get married. Is the person a Christian? No. But this is my last chance. I'm going to do it. Or a person comes to you and says, you know, I've got some Mormon friends and I've been hanging out with them. I like what they have to say. I'm going to start going to the Mormon church. That actually happened with a person once in this congregation years ago. Or a person says, I'm done with church. I don't like it. I don't like these people. I'm, I'm done with it. I'm just going to live by myself on my own as a Christian. I don't need the church. People come to you, say something like that. Here's the pressure in the culture. It's for you to say in response to that, who am I to judge? Whatever makes you happy. You know, how can I tell you anything different? If that's what you want to do, okay. What John says is, if, you're, if that's a Christian speaking to a Christian, that's an act of hate. To just allow someone to go stumbling into some sin, that's what verse 10 is saying. The one who loves somebody else doesn't give them cause to stumble. The Christian says, I think that's a bad idea. I think you are rebelling against God. I think this is going to end poorly for you. I urge you not to do that. That's what the Christian, the loving Christian says. Now, when they're talking to people outside the church, that's a different thing. That's, a, that's another sermon. But we, we, we speak to them a little differently than we speak to brothers and sisters in the church. But look what it says here in the book of James. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is a huge act of love to pursue the person who's wandering away from the faith. So that's the example that John gives us of how we love in the church. Of course, there's a number of other ways that we do that, but that's the one he refers to here in verse 10. So there's one last thing. And that is, <clears throat> look to the light of the gospel. As we learn how to love well, look to the light of the gospel. Let me take you back to verse 8 now. Verse 8 is a little surprising, actually. <laughs> I told you all that stuff about the old commandment and ancient scriptures and looking at what is old. And then John says this in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment <laughs> that I am writing to you. There is a sense in which the command to love is new, according to John. Now, is this a contradiction between verses 7 and 8? I think the answer is no. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is saying, I'm not, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law, to dismiss it, to overturn it, or to abolish it. So there's no dismissal of what is old, but Jesus did come to fulfill them, and so there is a sense in which the command to love in the new covenant, after Jesus has come, lived, died, and has been resurrected, there's a sense in which the command to love is new. There is a newness, there is a freshness to it that didn't exist before, and the, the newness is seen in two ways. First, it's true in him. Look at verse 8 again. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him. The newness of this command is true 
in Jesus in the sense that as Jesus has come into the world, he has displayed and modeled love for us like no one ever before and like no one ever since. It's like in the Old Testament, the command to love was in black and white, but now that Jesus has come, it's in full color. I mean, it's even in 3D now. I mean, we've got the full detailed video of what love looks like in the life and actions and teachings of Jesus. Everything that God has in mind that was written in the ancient scriptures as just simply commands has now been enfleshed in Jesus and has walked among us as a real life person who loved exactly how the Father wanted him to love. That had never happened before and so in that sense, this command is brand new. In Jesus, we have this this person who left the throne room of heaven, the comforts of being at the right hand of the Father to pursue sinners, to come after you, and to come after me. In Jesus, we have a person who knelt before his disciples, his thick-headed, rebellious disciples. He knelt before them and washed their feet. We're seeing love and color with those kinds of actions. This is uh, the one who... <clears throat> Um, laid down his life for his enemies. He didn't conquer his enemies and destroy his enemies. He died for his enemies. This is the one hanging on the cross, looking out at the people who put him there, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what I'm doing right now is doing what is necessary to save them, the ones killing me. That's, that's the gospel. That's an unbelievable, remarkable, unprecedented kind of love. You won't find it anywhere else in the world, in any other religion, in any other famous person, in any other story. There's no love like the love of Jesus. And that's what John is saying here. That's what's new about this. It's new in him. It's new in Jesus. But then look what he says as he goes on in verse 8. I mean, we're talking just little pronouns here, but they're so profound the new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, but look what it says next, and in you. This newness, this new way of loving is true in that it is demonstrated in the life of Jesus. But now what John is saying is that this love is true in you, and the you there is plural. So he's not talking about individuals, he's talking to the church. He's saying... Church of Jesus Christ, he's saying New Life Presbyterian, this radical command to love that is exemplified in the work of Jesus should now be true in your midst. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, right? And so we see the light has come into the world. It says that in this passage. But Jesus also said this to his disciples, you are the light of the world. You, congregation, you're the light of the world. Think of that. We represent the one hope for humanity, the church. Now, are we going to exemplify that perfectly? No. But can we exemplify that and show that in a way better than the world? Yes, we can. Because Jesus has died to forgive us. We have relationship with our Father. Jesus has ascended to the Father. He has sent the Holy Spirit. He's given us new hearts. The law has been written on our heart. The Spirit lives in us. We're new creations in Christ. We're different. We're changed. We're not like we used to be. And now we are a community of people called 
to love each other. Primarily so, the world will look and say, truly those people are followers of Jesus. Because nothing else can explain the way they're acting and, and what they're doing. This should be seen, friends, in the way we as a community, the way we, the way we serve one another, the way we listen to one another, the way we forgive one another, the way we pursue one another. People wander away. People come to church for a while, they disappear. Do we go after them? Love does. Love pursues people. Love is seen in the way we refuse to keep a list of grievances against one another. Love is seen in the way we encourage one another. We visit one another. We invite one another into our homes. We refuse to be envious of one another. We refuse to be competitive with one another. We refuse to be jealous of one another. That's what we're called to do, to show the glory of God, the glory of gospel, of the gospel, and the newness of this love. Friends, we're not going to do it well. We're going to fail over and over again, but there is a promise here that this newness should be seen in us. There's a promise about the power of the Holy Spirit. There is true change that we can expect as God's people so that people will say, as they come into new life, this would be my prayer, and I hope it's yours too, that people, as they come into this community, would say, that's a place where the true light is shining. That's a place where the darkness is passing away. That's what we want here. By the Spirit of God, I think it's possible. Father, we thank you that you are a God who have loved us to the fullest. Father, fill our hearts with grateful joy that we might love one another in the way you have loved us. Lord, forgive us for our bitterness. Forgive us for our grudge holding. Forgive us for our apathy toward our brothers and sisters. Help us to love well. In Jesus' name.